Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. As we continue to mourn the victims of the Oxford High School shooting last week, we're going to have a conversation about the law and gun laws in particular. Do we have to endure these kinds of violent acts as the price of freedom? Or are there practical and reasonable changes to gun laws that could help prevent them? We are going to talk with an expert about the possibilities, and we'll want to hear from you, too. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in today. So we have learned quite a bit since Friday morning about the circumstances surrounding last week's horrific school shooting at Oxford High School, just 40 miles up the road from us here at WDET in Oakland County. We learned that the accused shooter's parents bought him the gun used to kill four of his classmates as a Christmas present. We learned that Ethan Crumbly was caught searching for ammunition during class and that administrators had contacted his parents without a response. Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald says Ethan's mother, Jennifer Crumbly, texted him about the incident even as it was going to happen, saying, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You've got to learn not to get caught. And we learned that the school found a really disturbing drawing that Ethan had made depicting a violent shooting, which led to an in-person meeting between school guidance counselors, the parents, and Ethan. No one ever inquired at that meeting about the whereabouts of the gun that Ethan's parents had just bought him. For those and other reasons, Prosecutor McDonald is also charging James and Jennifer Crumbly each with four counts of involuntary manslaughter. They're, they are now in custody after a manhunt that led law enforcement to a commercial building on Detroit's east side. Meanwhile, the community of Oxford is really still reeling, trying to band together to mourn and support one another, while also dealing with an unimaginable amount of collective trauma and fear. We want to talk today about the shooting in Oxford, of course, but specifically, what laws and policies could have been in place and followed to maybe prevent this from happening. And I think this is something that a lot of people are discussing right now. I had a conversation on social media over the weekend with some folks who really doubt the idea that the law could be different in a way that would prevent these kind of things. I think the thinking behind that goes something like this. Law-abiding citizens follow laws, but criminals don't. And so if you change gun laws, for instance, to make it harder to get a gun, to increase the responsibility for gun owners, to prevent them from allowing those firearms to get into the hands of people who will do awful things with them, if you regulate ammunition or any of these things that we have been talking about for a long time, I think the critics would say, well, that's not actually going to make a difference because criminals don't follow the law. Of course, we have lots of other examples in our culture, in our society, where the law does prevent a lot of illegal behavior. So what's the difference? Why do we think guns are so fundamentally different, for instance, from cars? which are subject to a number of regulations 
that have reduced accidents and deaths, maimings, all of the things that we worry about with people getting behind the wheel. That's where we want to start the conversation today. What could we do differently to make sure that things like what happened in Oxford last week are at least less likely to happen than they are right now? Think of how frequently in this country somebody brings a gun to a school and kills children. Joining us right now to talk about this legal environment and the opportunity for change is somebody who is spending a lot of time thinking about these things. Allison Anderman is Senior Counsel and Director of Local Policy for the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. That is a national organization that advocates for tighter gun regulations. Allison Anderman, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start with your general reaction to the charges that Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald announced on Friday. She's reaching beyond the shooter himself and saying that his parent, who bought him the gun and who probably had a reasonable suspicion that he was having a hard time and might act violently, they did nothing. Uh, Karen McDonald says that makes them liable for a charge of uh, involuntary manslaughter. What's what's your reaction to that? As a general matter, I think anything that promotes the awareness that leaving firearms unsecured in a home where they're accessible to minors puts minors at risk. And Michigan, unfortunately, is in the minority of states that does not have a specific child access prevention law that would make a parent or other adult criminally liable for allowing a firearm to fall into the hands of a minor. And so I think these charges bring awareness to that fact and will hopefully generate um, momentum to pass that type of a law because we know that those laws, these child access prevention laws, are very impactful at preventing um, the most common types of uh, gun violence that impacts minors, such as suicides, unintentional shootings, at least, uh, at least a significant part. So I think uh, that's a positive step. Yeah. So uh, I want to go back to something you said at, at the open of your answer, that Michigan is in the minority of states in the way that it deals with uh, this issue. So, so talk about how other states, I guess in general, uh, address the, the, the question of how guns get into the hands of kids and I guess how frequently you might see charges in other states brought against parents who negligently allow firearms to fall into the hands of their kids. So there is a wide continuum of laws that make an adult criminally liable and in, in some cases civilly liable for uh, leaving a firearm accessible to a minor. So the strongest laws um, like California uh, prevent an adult from even leaving an unloaded firearm accessible to a minor, which is important because minors can get their, especially older minors like, you know, old, uh, teens can get their hands on ammunition for an unloaded firearm. Mm -hmm. um, there are states that have weaker sets of these types of child access prevention laws that only hold a parent or adult liable if a minor gets a hold of a gun and uses it to shoot someone else. Um, but what we do know is that these laws broadly can reduce suicides and unintentional gun deaths and injuries among children and teens by up to 54%. And, and, and I think it's really important when we talk about events like this to remember that as shocking and horrible as they are and, and really catastrophic loss of life, 
they still represent a tiny fraction of gun deaths in this country. Mm-hmm. And most children and teens who are injured or killed by guns are affected by suicides, by domestic violence, and by interpersonal community violence that predominantly impacts communities of color in urban areas. Mm-hmm. So we have to think about these policies broadly and not only in the ways that they might prevent these very rare, still, believe it or not, types of shootings. Yeah. I, I think that's a really important point. Uh, and it's something that's kind of gotten a little lost in the shock of what happened here last week. And, and I think the, the, the sort of furied effort to try to figure out exactly what went wrong and and where but but I, I think it's critical to understand that for most young people uh, the, the, the threat from gun violence doesn't exactly look like this and that's not to say that there isn't significant threat to young people from gun violence there is there is an enormous amount of danger that children here in the city of Detroit, for instance, face from uh, from the prevalence of guns, from uh, from the easy access to guns that so many people have, and that when we're thinking about the law and the way it ought to be structured, those are the things that ought to weigh as heavily as the fear of a, a mass shooting at a high school, a random sort of act like this. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, and I, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I, just one point about um, the types, you know, as, as you mentioned, Detroit and most major cities um, really suffer from um, the disproportionate impact of this type of um, interpersonal community violence. But we do know the solutions to that type of violence. And it is essentially to reduce the demand for crime guns. And there are these enormously effective programs that are led by the community that have been shown to reduce this demand dramatically. But what those programs need is funding. Mm -hmm. And Michigan, um, actually, Governor Whitmer this year um, introduced uh, significant funding um, legislation to uh, promote these programs, and it is currently awaiting passage in the legislature. So I just wanted to make your uh, your listeners aware of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to go back to the point that I was talking about in the open for this segment, where I was talking about this conversation I had on social media over the weekend with some people who are a little skeptical of the idea that a change in gun laws would produce a change in outcomes. Uh, I think there is this uh, this narrative that we hear pretty frequently when we talk about gun laws that says criminals don't follow the law anyway. And so the idea of changing the law to try to prevent crime or to try to prevent specific types of crime is a futile effort. It's a it's a fool's errand because criminals won't follow the new laws any more than they follow the laws now. Uh, my my retort to that often is: well, there are lots of things uh, that we regulate pretty heavily in our, in our nation and in our culture, and yes, they they, they fail to completely prevent misbehavior or tragedy from happening. But they reduce the incidence of those tragedies. Uh, cars, driving, uh, I think is a wonderful analogy. Uh, cars and driving exist in a very highly regulated environment in our country. And uh, because they are more regulated now than they were 40 or 50 or 60 years ago, there are a lot fewer deaths as a result. I think uh, something like uh, tobacco is another really interesting analogy. Uh, Once upon a time, uh, the tobacco industry was able to do whatever it wanted, really, to sell its product and have no liability at all. Uh, That changed, and the incidence of smoking, deaths from smoking, all went down. Uh, Why shouldn't 
we think of guns in the same way, or do you believe we should? And and can you give us some examples of the ways in which tighter gun regulations reduce, not prevent? I mean, prevent is a very strong word, and the idea that you would eliminate uh, the possibility of somebody breaking the law and doing something uh, rather garish, I think, is is absurd. But the idea, I think, behind governance and regulation is to reduce incidents of violence and death. Uh, can you talk about why, in, in your estimation, it makes sense to, to, to change the law? Sure. So, first of all, most people who commit these high-profile mass shootings were law-abiding citizens until they weren't, until they committed a mass shooting. I think your point um, about regulation um, is exactly right. I mean, we have laws in in this country because they serve a deterrent effect. Um, But I also want to point out that um, we, every year we do a gun law scorecard and we grade the states on the strength of their gun laws. And and every year for the last uh, 13 years that we've been doing this scorecard, we're able to show a very strong correlation between states that have strong gun laws and corresponding low gun death rates and vice versa. States with weaker laws have much higher gun death rates. Mm. And we know these laws are effective at reducing gun injuries and death, the laws that we advocate for. We advocate for evidence-based policies and there are a whole host of these policies and that you can read about on our website and the studies behind them that show that they do reduce the types of gun deaths that they're intended to. For example, um, a licensing law that requires uh, gun owners to get a license to purchase their own firearms. Um, In Connecticut, when Connecticut enacted this law, they saw a dramatic decrease in gun homicides Mm -hmm. and gun suicides. And conversely, when Missouri repealed its gun licensing law, it saw a dramatic increase in gun suicides and homicides. So I think the way to think about this is to remember that we these policies are intended to prevent gun access by people who are at high risk of committing violence and that they are effective and that without them, it is just far, far too easy for someone who wants to do harm either in an impulsive or premeditated moment to get their hands on a gun. Mm-hmm. And And... There's also this question, I think, of the point of no return, I guess I might call it, where there are so many guns in existence in this country. There are so many guns that have been sold. There are so many guns in people's homes that I think some people who oppose stiffer gun laws say, you know, you're past the point where you could regulate this in a sensible way to prevent gun crimes or to prevent gun gun violence. How do you answer? How do you answer that uh, that particular narrative that that we we really are maybe too late in America to do very much about this? Well, first of all, I, I want to make the point that people who advocate that are are in the very, very small minority of Americans. You know, over 97% of Americans want background checks on all gun purchases at the national level, and we don't have that. Um, And that includes over 85% of gun owners. So people who make these arguments, again, are in a very small and extreme minority of people. But the, the, the answer to that is the same as the answer that I gave just a moment earlier, is that we know that these laws work even in a country awash with guns. And and sure, um, if there were far fewer guns in this country, we would see, we would have fewer gun deaths um, undoubtedly. But even in our current situation, we know that these laws are effective from the data. And so um, saying that uh, there are too many guns, therefore we shouldn't regulate them is certainly one of the more absurd arguments I've ever heard. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about gun laws, gun laws specifically here in Michigan, how they might be changed to 
reduce the incidence of gun violence, not just in terms of the kinds of mass shootings that we saw last week at Oxford High School, but in terms of all of the gun violence that, in particular, our children face. We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Do you think Michigan's gun laws are adequate? If you think we need tougher gun laws, what do you think lawmakers should be talking about? What should they be considering and passing? If you don't think we need stiffer gun laws, call and tell us why. Are you someone who thinks that the Second Amendment is absolute and that we shouldn't be regulating firearms or their distribution or possession in America? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking right now about laws, the law, gun laws in particular here in Michigan. How might they change in a way that would make it less likely that things like what happened at Oxford High School last week would so tragically take the lives of our kids and those who educate them. How might we change gun laws to prevent other kinds of gun violence that threatens young people here in the state of Michigan? Think of all the people, all the young people in the city of Detroit who face incredible danger on a daily basis from the prevalence of guns that we have in this city and the easy access that is available to those guns. We want to hear from you during this conversation, especially. Do you think that the gun laws in Michigan are too lax? Do you think that we could do better? Could we tighten them or introduce new kinds of legislation that would make all of these things less prevalent? Or are you somebody who believes that we have a Second Amendment right to have guns, to distribute guns, to possess guns, and that these laws are an infringement on those rights. We especially want to hear from you if you're a gun owner. How do you keep your firearm safe? How do you make sure that a child doesn't get hold of it? What responsibility do you feel to make sure that your gun doesn't fall into the hands of somebody who will do something violent or deadly with it? And, of course, we really want to hear from parents as well. I think all of us who are parents have a knot in our stomach right now about what happened last week in Oxford. We're grateful, of course, that it wasn't our children who were in that building, who were the victims. But I think we're also just heartbroken over the families who are spending this holiday season burying their children. Call and tell us how you process, as a parent, the prevalence of guns in our culture and in our society, and whether you think it's, it's time to do something different, to do something better. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation. Our guest right now is Allison Anderman. She is the Senior Counsel and Director of Local Policy at the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, which is a national organization 
that advocates for tighter gun regulations. Uh, let's start today with Jimmy in Birmingham. Jimmy, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen. Good to talk to you as always. Sure. Um, so I have a 14-year-old son, and um, he obviously was made aware of everything that happened. And, um, you know, he's really reeling with the idea that this kid was only a year older than he is that, that, um, that's accused of doing this. And mm-hmm. so, so for me, it goes without question that, you know, mental health, um, mental illness, all that stuff needs to be way at the forefront of the conversation. Mm-hmm. As far as laws go, I was talking to Jake before um, you put me on, and I, one question I have is um, metal detectors. Are metal detectors, um, are those required, are those, how do those get implemented, right? And mm-hmm. and not to, to even take the conversation another step, I, I was saying to Jake, I said, I don't understand. It seems like where you find the most metal detectors are in schools in the inner city. Mm-hmm. Yet these shootings seem to happen more frequently in rural and suburban areas. And I just, I find that so fascinating. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll just leave it at that and, and hear what you folks think. Yeah, Jimmy, I really appreciate the, the the call and the perspective, especially uh, you know, as a as a parent of a similarly aged child to uh, Ethan Ethan Crumbly, uh, I, I will say that that the metal detector question has been around for a really long time in cities like Detroit, and that's dating back to when I was in high school here in the city in the late 1980s. I remember uh, the discussions then about. How to keep kids safe in in mostly the public schools here in in the city that uh, that they believed they needed metal detectors to stop people from bringing guns into the buildings. Now these are local decisions here in Michigan. I mean we we have um, you know an incredible amount of autonomy that exists for every school district to decide on its own how it wants to implement safety protocols, and so. I mean, the the simple answer to your question is that in suburban communities, uh, there's no there's no collective will to to have metal detectors uh, at the doors to screen everybody coming in and out. And I think that there is this sense of, um, you know, creating a, a prison like environment or a courthouse like environment in a school. What that does to school culture, I can tell you that it it has absolutely changed uh, the culture in Detroit schools uh, over the last several decades as uh, we've had these kinds of um, you know heavy searches really of of children as they enter buildings high schoolers um, I think there are a lot of suburban communities that feel like they don't want that uh, they don't want that for their children and so uh, they've they've resisted uh, I, I I have seen conversations. Um, in the last week about uh, whether we ought to be rethinking that in some of these districts. And, and perhaps you will see heightened security in place in Oxford, I think, in the short term. I don't know what that will look like, but I would imagine that they will react to this in some way there. Uh, but but really it is a question of you know parents and school board members coming to the conclusion that that they need that kind of uh, safety protocol and and in the suburbs it just doesn't happen here in in southeast Michigan uh, Allison Anderman I wonder if you can talk more about I guess the, the the national context of these kinds of safety measures this is not exactly uh, gun policy but certainly when you put metal detectors in schools what you're trying to screen out is, uh, the idea of weapons, and, and a lot of those weapons are guns. Well, I first want to address the comment that these shooters seem to occur more often in suburban or rural communities, and that's actually not the case. Hmm. Um, these extremely high-profile national headline-grabbing shootings um, are ones that typically impact white communities, where the shooter was unrelated to the victims and there was a high casualty count. But every day there are shootings in schools Mm -hmm. that predominantly impact communities of color and they do not make national 
news. So again, I just want to emphasize these shootings are extremely rare Mm -hmm. and that I am unaware of any data that shows that metal detectors are effective at preventing these types of shootings and that we really need to not focus our policy efforts on, we have to think broadly about gun violence and how to prevent it. And we have to think about how to keep guns out of the hands of people who are likely to commit violence. And the caller raised a really important point that this young man seems to have been struggling and there were signs and we need to do a better job of ensuring that people who are at high risk, possibly like this young man, Mm -hmm. are not given access to firearms and are getting the appropriate interventions and help. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's where we should be focusing our efforts to prevent these types of shootings. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, Jimmy, really appreciate the call um, and your really thoughtful comments. Um, let's go to Brian in Novi. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Hey. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just have a thought. Um, it may be too generalized, uh, but I sort of you know, you hear this happening over and over, and uh, my thinking always sort of defaults to, well, what is at the root of all of this? Um, and, and that would be, and there's a list of things. It could be a thesis, but what is this obsession uh, mentality? Is there a demographic that can be um, figured out or something? Uh, you know, for the type of like people that want guns in this country, I'm not a gun owner. Um, I don't think about guns. I don't care to have a gun. I don't see the point. Um, and what is this, like, sort of American, like, default to wanting to own a firearm? Um, and I was sort of joking with a screener um, in a way, like, why didn't this, these parents buy this kid, you know, a watercolor kit, you know, to do some drawings or something? Why do they need buy him a firearm sure. and why do so many people want firearms and you know does it go back further to this i almost feel like there's this arrogance and um insensitivity and this selfishness that comes with uh that type of thinking i've traveled uh quite a bit outside the united states mm-hmm. australia europe etc and and you really from the outside you can see this sort of macho um uh like five come out of the United States um, and they could go away for the government. I mean, does this go back to, um, you know, when this country was sort of founded sure. and, yeah. you know, the I, things, yeah, presidents have said and the rugged, all that stuff. I mean, where does this yeah, Brian come from? Brian, Thank those you. are great. Yeah. Those are great questions. And, and it, it does get past the, the sort of immediacy of the question of gun regulation to, Questions about our culture, and I guess one of the things that I think it raises is this this interplay between the culture and the law. And again, Allison Anderman, this question of whether this is a nation that is prepared to to to, to treat guns differently, um, and and whether that will make enough of a difference in other words that that if, if you've got such a sort of fundamental enthusiasm for an indulgence for the idea of firearms uh, how effective i guess are our gun law is going to be well again I, I have to go back to the point that most americans want stronger gun laws when you ask them specifically about specific laws. Again, mm-hmm. you know, 90, over 97% of Americans want background checks on, on, on all gun purchases. And when you ask Americans about specific policies, um, generally speaking, uh, the, the vast majority are in favor, um, even in states like Texas and states where there is um, a very strong gun culture. So there's a real disconnect between what Americans want and what legislators are voting for or not, or voting against. Um, 
Again, even in Texas, we saw this this year, they enacted a law um, repealing the requirement that uh, people have a permit and background check to carry a gun in public. And that was a very unpopular law. About over 60% of voters um, did not want that law. And similarly, most Texans want universal background checks mm -hmm. and the state legislature voted down um, that bill. Um, but I think that, um, you know, we have to remember that the NRA and the gun industry peddles, peddles this um, mm -hmm. notion of fear mm -hmm. in our country that we need to be afraid at all times and that we need to carry a gun at all times to protect ourselves from this um, fear. And that um, they also focus a lot of their messaging on guns as necessary to masculinity. And um, we need to counter that narrative. But um, that does not mean that we should stop trying to pass the laws that most Americans want to mm. prevent gun violence. Yeah. yeah. Again, Brian, really appreciate the call and the questions. Uh, let's go to Munir in Detroit. Munir, welcome to the show. Uh, hey, Stephen, how you doing? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. I just want to uh, point out, I I personally have a firearm. Mm -hmm. I never really wanted one. I was in a situation uh, at a place of worship where I was a, kind of a de facto uh, security person, and I found myself in a position that kind of was alarming mm -hmm. uh, uh, at that time, but in regards to uh, children, and I'm a parent of two young uh, young children. One one's nine, and one's uh, be turning six next month. Mm. I keep my firearm locked at all times, bullet separate, and uh, it's not a toy. I think my my daughter just found out I had one, uh, and that was because uh, we were filling out some paperwork or something. And the question was asked. Um, but I think parents, a lot of times, it's difficult for them to see um, trouble in their mm -hmm. children. Uh, like the text that the mother sent, mm -hmm. ha, 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 you know, just don't get caught. Mm -hmm. She's thinking, you know, in my mind, she's thinking like, hey, you know, don't get caught, you know, looking up bullets in class uh, on your cell phone. Yeah. You know, um, but I think as parents, a lot of times it's kind of an arrogance. Uh, like the previous caller said, we think we got everything under control. Uh, we don't want uh, metal detectors. We don't want to uh, limit uh, gun access. Um, and we turn a blind eye out of pride um, to the effects that weapons have or firearms yeah. have in our community. Munir, I, I really appreciate the call and the perspective. And I really appreciate you sharing, you know, the fact that you're a gun owner and a parent. There are a lot of people who fall into that category. I know so many people in the city of Detroit, for instance. I mean, this is a very, um, this is a very heavy gun ownership community. Uh, and I think that surprises people sometimes uh, how many Detroiters feel like they need a gun uh, for their own personal safety and, and their parents at the same time. Uh, Allison Anderman, this is an example of somebody who sounds like they're, they're, they're doing it right despite the laws. Um, but again, um, there's still that opportunity, and I want to reinforce that. There's still that opportunity here in Michigan to make sure that parents and other gun owners are more responsible with the firearms they have and don't let them fall into the hands of children. Yeah, and I just want to emphasize the point that, and, and I totally agree with Munir that um, parents are often the last people to recognize, I, as a parent myself, <laughs> hmm. when um, their kids are uh, at risk. But um, I, do, I do, the school did seem to, know and have um, identified some warning signs. And um, there are a number of states that have laws that allow um, some categories of people to take um, action in a court to prevent gun access by someone who is um, showing a credible risk of um, committing violence with a firearm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, as of right now, there's only one state in the country, um, California, I believe, that allows school administrators to take that action. Um, but in many other states, community, uh, family and household members and law enforcement can take those steps. Michigan does not have this law. It's most commonly referred to as a red flag law, but we refer to it as an extreme risk protection order. So that is another thing. And those laws, again, have been shown um, to actually reduce the likelihood of mass shootings, but even more so um, suicides. Because uh, again, uh, it's worth mentioning that two thirds of people killed with guns in the United States are um, gun owners who take their own lives with their own firearms. Mm. And that has a lot to do with gun access. Okay. Allison Anderman, uh, Senior Counsel and Director of Local Policy at the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about another topic that has to do with what lawmakers can do and currently are not doing to make schools safer. Republican leaders in the state legislature still have not spent $300 million in federal money to help schools safely operate in-person classes while the pandemic continues. We're going to talk with Crane's Detroit Business Senior Editor Chad Livengood about his recent column about this issue. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. School safety is top of mind for parents across Michigan and across the nation right now after the shooting in Oxford last week. But that's on top of the other major school safety threat that we have been dealing with for almost two years now, and that's the COVID-19 pandemic. Districts have done their best to deal with the reality of holding in-person classes amid a deadly pandemic for months this school year. And they've been doing it without the help of $300 million in federal money that is earmarked specifically for that purpose. Why? Because state lawmakers simply haven't gotten around to passing it along. That's the subject of a new column in Crane's Detroit Business, by senior editor Chad Livingood. He joins us now to talk about it. Chad, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. So let's start with some background. Uh, why was this money approved, and what did Congress intend schools to do with this money? Yeah, so when uh, Congress was, was shaping and putting together the American Rescue Plan back in the winter, um, you had a disparate uh, regulation of schools across the country. Some were closed, some were in these hybrid, uh, and some were fully in person. And just it kind of depended state by state. But they knew that uh, the majority of, of large districts, particularly in urban areas uh, and suburban areas, uh, were were shut down or uh, largely uh, remote. And so reopening schools kind of a key thing to reopening the economy and to get people back to work. I mean, we sent a million people home uh, um, from the workforce in a matter of two weeks in late March, early April last year when we had the first big shutdown. And so uh, getting people back to work is really dependent upon 1.6 million kids in Michigan schools, back in Michigan schools. Um, and so Congress put this money in here for, for, for schools, for grants for helping their reopening operations, and one of the one of the focuses is on testing, um, providing uh, you know test kits, paying money for personnel, for nurses or other type of medical personnel who can administer tests, um, just in the same way that every police department now has pretty much in, in the country has a rapid test uh, in every police precinct, and then and, and officers are tested daily, and same thing with 
firefighters and, um, and emergency medical personnel and doctors and nurses and other kind of critical uh, operations. Uh, people, uh, Congress viewed that, that, that teachers and students themselves needed to have some kind of access to testing on a daily basis. And that's why they put this money in in March with the intent that it would be uh, uh, implemented uh, in August or September when schools started reopening in Michigan and elsewhere. Hmm. So why haven't lawmakers acted? Why is the money still sitting around? That's a good question. Um, you get this uh, response from um, uh, the uh, House Appropriations Chairman, uh, Thomas Albert, who said, well, we've already appropriated money for testing um, and the administration hasn't spent it. Well, that's that's money for testing in, uh, and that goes down to the, the community level in, um, in broadly in, in, in hospitals and in, and in local health departments. This is a separate pot of money, and there's really not a much of an explanation beyond that, well, we've already appropriated uh, testing money or this is multiple years. Well, this, this money in particular is not for multiple years. It has to be spent by July 31st, and I was raising the question, here it is, the first week in December, and we still haven't even appropriated this money, mm -hmm. much less deploying it. It's not exactly easy to sort of marshal these resources um, and and get these into, into, into schools. And so there's not a lot of explanation other than they when they did the budget back in September, uh, they put off doing um, making decisions about the multiple billions of dollars in COVID stimulus money from the American Rescue Plan uh, for another day. And, and because they put it off for another day, um, they, it's just been kind of, uh, you know, legislature can hold it up. I mean, that's how the, our process works. Governor proposes, and the legislature disposes. And the governor has been asking for this money since a late spring. Uh, mm -hmm. They even put it in writing in a request back in July and still uh, have not gotten it and back, and back in mid-November when the legislature was on its um, annual deer hunting uh, uh, recess. Uh, the um, state budget director made another request in writing to have this money appropriated just because of the urgency of if they're going to get these grants out to schools, they got to get them soon uh, in order for that to be actually be effective in the spring at this rate. So what do school leaders say about the absence of this money in their budgets and in their efforts to try to maintain in-person instruction during the pandemic? The school superintendents I've talked to, um, uh, you know, are, are working under duress every day. I think that that's the best, I mean, the best way to put it. And last week with the, with the shooting in Oxford, it, it became just uh, absolute emergency in many cases. Um, they, they are trying to uh, manage a constant, constant churn of students testing positive, teacher tests positive, the students that, then, that they were around all get sent home for quarantine. They got to get tested in order to return to school. Some schools have gotten a little more flexible where they, you can test every day, um, but you have to go out and get the test. And I mean, I know that they're doing this in Washtenaw County, but parents have to go out and find a test every single day, rapid test. Uh, for their kid in order for them to stay in school if they were exposed. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is just proven really, really difficult. And so there's, there's an untold amount of, of, of loss of learning that's going on this year because kids are continuously uh, getting exposed or, or other kids are getting COVID and, and it's just spreading. And so, um, and yes, there is a lower uh, percentage of, of uh, much lower percentage of young 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 people who actually get really sick from COVID, or end or end up in the hospital, or or a much much more lower uh, uh, case of of, uh, of death by COVID for, uh, for young people, but it still spreads. Uh, and and so part of the thing that kind of is most confounding here is we've had a lot of time to understand how this virus works. And by last spring, Congress had the aware of all an idea that should have um, school level testing uh, in order to maintain the continuity of schools. Uh, but the legislature just has not uh, engaged on this. And I've, I've seen this multiple times uh, throughout this pandemic where legislative leadership uh, in the Republican Party uh, that controls the legislature has really just lacked any urgency regarding the the threat to COVID, and yet they they've also stated over and over they want schools running, they want schools open, 
Um, and this is one way to get schools open and keep them open, uh, because we've seen a lot of schools in, um, in Detroit, uh, Ann Arbor, uh, and elsewhere that had to close down for whole weeks or Fridays now in Detroit and Southfield, uh, shut down, essentially trying to just, just to mitigate COVID spread, um, as much as possible. But that's continuing to, to just chip away at the, at the classroom instruction time and, and causing, you know, untold um, long-term effects to our, our education and our economy. And also uh, can, it continues to keep parents uh, at home uh, or caregivers of some sort, which is fewer people who can reenter the workforce. All this stuff is really interconnected. And I, I do not see that there's a lot of um, uh, forethought about that right now in, in, at the Capitol. So we've only got about a minute left, but I wonder if you can talk just a little about the prospects for this actually getting resolved. Well, the legislature is um, they've, they've got a couple more days here in December that they can uh, they could still take up a, a supplemental spending bill. Um, I, I'm told that there is something in the works uh, on COVID spending, whether this is included is is a. Uh, whether this testing money is included is it remains to be seen, but the money is sitting there. It's not going to cost Michigan taxpayers more money up front. I mean, yes, this is federal debt, but um, but it's 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 sitting there and, and and it can be spent at any time. But the the window is closing for the effectiveness of this, especially since we are in this fourth surge, and and so many uh, medical experts are predicting that. Uh, we could see this surge on a continued high caseload, high hospitalization load well into the winter. And so uh, the time to, to, to deploy this money uh, has probably already passed, really, uh, at least in being effective. But there, no, there's still time, though. Mm. Okay. Chad Livengood, Senior Editor at Crane's Detroit Business. Always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow, and I hope you will, too. This is 101.9 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.